honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. <laughs> All right, so we're welcome back. We are an Unfiltered. This is Nick Sippis, your host, and I'm honored to have the dynamic duo of doctors Katie and Pete Bakes, the legendary <laughs> ER couple of the great city of Denver and the great state of Colorado. Welcome. Maybe a little overstated, but thank you. You can't possibly <laughs> overstate the bakes. <laughs> I feel like you couldn't get anyone else to interview today. <laughs> well, it will be worth what we paid you to be here. I can prom- I can promise you that. We're getting paid? That is a whopping zero dollars. Big handshake, free bottle of water. <laughs> At least we're not getting fined. High budget. <laughs> I'm just here so I don't get fined. High budget production here. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves to... Our, uh, our group of listeners with uh, your current position and uh, what occupies your time kind of extra clinically too, because I think it'll be interesting to talk about that. Pete, do you want to go first? Sure, sure. So my name is uh, Pete Bakes. Uh, I've been an ER doctor in the community here at uh, Swedish Hospital in Denver for this is my 19th year. Um, uh, outside of work, uh, I spent a lot of time uh, raising a family. Uh, we have three uh, little girls that we love uh, the oldest one of which is 18 and 16 and 13, uh, Sam, Jess, and Avery, uh, which are definitely uh, what inspires us both, I think. Uh, and then uh, outside of work, uh, I'm involved uh, in a small startup, uh, tech startup uh, that's sort of medically based. Uh, so I'm sure that'll come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I do a little bit of community work. Uh, with a pipeline program, uh, uh, getting kids some work-based uh, uh, training uh, in uh, an ER setting. Um, so that's basically what we're doing these days. And I am Katie. I am Peter's wife. <laughs> and, uh, and so much more. <laughs> that is, um, that's the lowest line item on her CAD. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually at the very top. <laughs> um, I'm a professor in emergency medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And um, I'm also the director, medical director of pre-health programs at Denver Health and the director of um, our hospital-based violence intervention program, AIM, at-risk intervention and mentoring, and um, what, what, what else do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and our, the primary our, caregiver our, for three beautiful young daughters. <laughs> <laughs> but are you an astronaut? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Five-year plan. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Get the kids out of the house and then focus on Mars. <laughs> How did you guys meet? Do you want to? Do you want to tell us the story? Uh, yeah. So, uh, we met really early on in, uh, medical school. Uh, so it was actually the first time all of the students got together for an orientation. Uh, and we actually didn't meet there. (laughs) We never met. This this is being taped. I know, but like, I think you should tell the story, right? (laughs) Okay. Why don't you go? (laughs) So... So we didn't meet um, until the dean's party, but um, ooh, the dean's party, the dean's party. Yeah, I may have drank already a little a be- too much. Already a party. better start to the story than Pete's start. But, um, keep going. but no, but so we had. <laughs> You're friends with me first. <laughs> but I'm more endearing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if she doesn't say so herself. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, you're, please you're don't, lovely. Don't I'm, mind I'm us. My, please continue. I'm my, I'm my most favorable critic. <laughs> is anyone organizing this interview? No, this here? is a is total. <laughs> no, it's a total free for all. I feel for the editors. They're not paid very well. They're underpaid for their job. <laughs> yeah. Is your editor Nate? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Cheap, cheap labor. <laughs> Are you paid at all? <laughs> Shout out Nate Navadi. No pay for editing. Yeah. yeah. All right, we're gonna wrap things up here. Yeah, soon exactly. Or? That'll do it. All right. Thanks for coming out, everyone. I'm missing a court date for this. Uh, <laughs> You are? <laughs> what? No, not today. Oh, okay. Uh, Although that's not far from the truth. Follow question. <laughs> follow he got question. arrested once. Do you know about hey, that? Hey, whoa, whoa. Was that the time you guys met, or that's a separate that's gonna, story? <laughs> yeah, can you just stay on point? <laughs> no, but that's a really good story. Yeah, that's yeah. the next story. You need to cover yeah, that's that. the next, next episode. That's uh, mm. un, un, all un, unfiltered. <laughs> okay, can, can, yes. you, can you stay on task? Yes. So um, we actually had our opening, like, where all the med students got together for um, just a meet and greet. That was the, our first orientation event. And um, I saw him across the courtyard. And <laughs> he was, I don't know, there was something about him. Like, honestly, I never wanted to get married. I never wanted, I wanted to like travel the world and I don't know, help people. Um, and I know every, every med student wants to do that. Um, <laughs> But I think I really would have. <laughs> but um, but then but then I met Pete and everything, you know. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I uh, I saw him across the courtyard, and I had made a friend who actually we ended up living with um, the following year. And I turned to her and I said, "Do you see that guy?" And he was making himself kind of diminutive. He was talking to this little um, female student <laughs> who was with us and uh, who was in our. It was in our class. And I said, you see that guy? And she's like, yeah. And I said, that's the guy I'm going to marry. Katie Bakes gets what she wants. <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that. Sight unseen. <laughs> right off the lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, she kicked me in my cab. She's like, yeah, they're solid. I'll, I'll take them. Good stock. <laughs> Turned out he was good stock yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> but no, it just and then we met and then we met at the dean's party, um, and I didn't like him as much at the dean's <laughs> party. You're like, mm, maybe I should go help people. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> well, he kept making fun of me and being sarcastic, shockingly. Mature, mature. And um, and I was like, yeah, I don't know why I felt that way because I had such a strong feeling when I saw him. Um, I I was maybe a little. Yeah, she wasn't driving that night. <laughs> There's. I gave him. I there. gave him. I gave him some fodder to make fun of me, um, for sure. I, I was. I think I was talking about my grandmother being able to um, read tarot cards and tell the future. Ah. Yeah. Does this relate to Pete being arrested later, or this is a separate story? <laughs> no, that was all him. That was all him. <laughs> Just answer the question. <laughs> Um, but then I, but then we ran into each other again, maybe a month later, something like that mm -hmm. in the library. And, um, I was, I remember I was really angry about something and I was, I was walking to the elevator and he was by the elevator in the library. Uh, um, and he was just had pulled out some book from the bookshelf and was just reading it. And I thought, oh my God, this is the last thing I need to see this guy. And then, uh, we ended up talking by that bookshelf for like two hours. And when I left, I was like, what was I angry about? <laughs> and, and that was that. <laughs> I'm, I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs>
you pulled that book out to look smart when she was walking by. You're like, uh, uh, yeah, renal physiology? Yeah, yeah, I read this for fun. Yeah, I don't know. Did it... you? <laughs> did you? No, I did not. Okay. I was very I never interested in that. renal physiology. <laughs> I had a lot of pictures. It's easy to understand. <laughs> so you guys, you know, it was early on when you met, and now you've gone through kind of your, you trained together at UCLA and came out here afterward. The time Peter was in the big house, we went through that. Right. It's a dark, dark time. <laughs> we'll come back to that. We'll yeah, stay I, in the light for now, but I, we'll go to the dark. I've paid my debt to society. <laughs> I've been rehabilitated. <laughs> how have, Pete, I'll start with you. How have you seen Katie change over the course of training and being a, Ooh, you know, an fun. attending <laughs> and a professor? What have, what have you seen in her over the years? So, I mean, I think uh, from a professional level, I've seen a ton of growth. Uh, I mean, she's always been a curious, passionate person uh, pursuing sort of her uh, uh, ultimate goal, which is, I think, to use medicine to help people. Um, I think over the years... Technically, what it's supposed to be about, uh, right? That Seems passion. reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Among other things. As opposed to other people, you know. Can I get a word in? I'm sorry. <laughs> she's unique that way. So she's always been passionate about uh, expanding her sort of professional interests. Uh, I mean, uh, she was uh, selected to be chief resident uh, of our residency. She did an ultrasound fellowship thereafter. Um, uh, she got, you know, a coveted job here at Denver Health, and then. Soon after, carved out her academic niche. Uh, she went back and did a pediatric emergency medicine residency, uh, which was an additional sort of two years, uh, all the while uh, sort of raising our three girls and making sure that everything was taken care of at home with our family and with me. Um, I think that, you know, one thing that has never changed uh, is sort of her spirit, uh, which is that she's always been um she always she always would go to her uh core value which is you know i'm here on this earth to help other people and i think that when things got difficult uh balancing uh time and effort with uh, all those uh, academic interests and trying to become a professor and dealing with a lot of the things that you know women uh, have to feel when they're trying to balance career and family i think that you know, what came through was her, her real passion uh, to uh, help others. And I think that, you know, anyone who's met her uh, sees that in her. And it's been something that uh, has allowed has allowed our, our family to thrive throughout that whole process, overcoming the, the challenges that we've done. This is awesome because words are my love language. So, oh. like, I could just sit here forever. <laughs> How long did it take you to learn that words were her love language, Pete? <laughs> I think I think uh, I think after our after our first date, uh, she handed me like a laminated card. <laughs> Stick some to the script. Some just word, yeah. I tell him I'm the perfect wife because I'll go tell me I look pretty. You know, and he's like, "You look pretty," and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, thank you." That's <laughs> true. I mean, she and does it's look like, pretty. It's as if it's as if he said it on his own. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> You definitely prefer that to things he would say on his own. That's my. That's my. <laughs> it's good for things to be scripted sometimes, you know. <laughs> Katie, can you elaborate on that? I mean, I think that's a great point, and I think a lot of the folks in our listener cohort would identify with that. You know, young women getting into the professional career and trying to balance the 
competing interests of starting a family and raising a family and your professional and academic goals. And, and, you know, as you look back, what was particularly helpful for you as you were trying to do that and do it and clearly have done it well? Um, do you have any advice or thoughts about that? Um, I think the number one thing is having a partner that you love and respect and that is um, committed like you are to be part of that. And I can say 100% that we've been partners in it and done it together. So I, I think beyond that, you I think we both would say that you kind of need a village to also help mm -hmm. because um, I think people ask us a lot, you know, how did you do that? And I go, I don't know how I did it. Did one we, we <laughs> one day at a time. We actually didn't. <laughs> no, we and and we have we have some you know family nearby and great friends and um, the daycare providers. Yeah, been sort yeah. of part of our lives. Uh, ever since they took care of our kids when they were little. Yeah, we'd have them come and babysit. One really good tip for people out there, which I tell all young parents, is get a babysitter on the mornings of the weekend. Um, because, And I, I think, obviously, for emergency physicians, uh, being able to sleep in is something um, that is just incredibly coveted <laughs> in general yep. when, you, when you have kids. And so rather than uh, always having a time you have somebody come in for a date night, which sometimes when you have little kids and babies, a date night sounds exhausting. Mm -hmm. But have a, have a you know, sleep-in night or a date at night at, in your own home um, where you have, you know, even if it's a you know, community kid down the street who's 14, those are the best babysitters. And if you're home, you're not worried about, having that babysitter with your little kid and your infant because mm. you're still there. But you, it really, I think we really looked forward to those either Saturdays or Sundays when we both had off. We're also, we love sleeping. <laughs> We're both kind of night owls. If, if it was up to us, we would, you know, sleep in every day. Actually, in med school, that's what we did. We didn't actually go to class. We um, Scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. we, we watched the lectures. They were ready uh, for us when we woke up for that day. So we would sleep in. We would go listen to the lectures, and then we would stay up late. And that was our natural schedule, both of us. And so uh, I think having that morning where you can sleep in together, you can have you know coffee in bed, mm -hmm. you can just talk, you can go for a walk, um, dot, 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 you know, <laughs> is, is really important to... <laughs> <laughs> to have that time where yeah. it's it's not that pressure to say okay where are we going to go and what are we going to do like sometimes yeah um that's just too much and all you really need is some quality time together i mean you know i would say that going through med school which felt rigorous uh, and going through residency before that we had spent three months uh at the end of med school uh mm -hmm. learning medical spanish and then going to mm -hmm. guatemala which was a I would say very traumatic event. Yeah, I mean, really uh, difficult uh, experience for for both of us. Uh, I think that you know when you go through those types of uh, hardships together uh, when you're young, and you sort of uh, feel fundamentally connected with the other person based on values, uh, then it sort of uh, uh, gives you a lot of emotional reservoir to know that you know you can handle anything uh, as a team. And I mean, there was definitely times when I felt like there was struggle uh, where we were trying to, you know, be competent at work and be mindful uh, with our family, but, and, and, and things didn't always go great. Uh, but 
but I think that having that foundation where for, for, you know, years, uh, during, uh, uh, med school residency and then our time in Guatemala together, I think that we really just sort of learned to know that in the end, you know, we're there for each other, uh, and that, uh, we could really get through anything. I mean, I think it was really sort of, uh, a, a formative experience to do that. Mm. And I mean, I think that, you know, I think that every relationship, uh, especially if you have, you know, two people that are motivated, that generally have different personalities, complementary personalities, but similar values that, you know, there's always going to be sort of struggle. And I think if you can just sort of rely on that foundation and have trust in the, the fact that the, uh, you'll be there for each other in the end, then it sort of all works out. I think, I think that that's what, what, what my experience has been. Agreed. <laughs> Katie, what have you seen in Pete? How has he changed over the years? Or not changed. <laughs> Sitting here with a hoodie. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think our, the, you know, we, we play a lot, even in our language, if you haven't picked that up. <laughs> and, I th and I always say playing is really important in, you know, whatever form that is yeah. for, um, for your relationship. But that you, need to, you need to have a lot of humor in a relationship, especially to be able to get through some of the tough stuff. And um, I don't know. I'm just so proud to be his wife, honestly. He's um, such an amazing person, and he has so much character. Um, Pete's always uh, very analytically self-improving. So he's like, he always wants to accomplish something every day, and whether it's physically, intellectually, mentally. I'm doing push-ups right now. <laughs> Looking good, baby. <laughs> One hand. I don't know how his shirt got off so fast. <laughs> Is it real? You'll never know. That's why it's a podcast. <laughs> just trying to get the listeners up. You know, that's all. Just trying to draw up support. He looks good without a shirt on. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> oh, you're blushing. You're so cute. <laughs> I'm going to take a walk. You guys can take it from here, right? A, it's usually all, usually it's like aimed at me. So it's aimed at him. He doesn't know it. Look how uncomfortable he is right now. This is fun. <laughs> um... No, I, you know, he's, um, I think, become um, more thoughtful um, and more spiritual. And I don't know, it just his love has grown. I mean, I know mine has for him every day. I, I always tell him I love him more today than I did yesterday and the day we met. It's true. And, um, and I admire him a lot. I think being able to admire your partner is really important. Um, but he's always growing and developing. I always worry I'm not, I'm not doing that as much as he is. <laughs> I mean, I think one thing that helped me sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, mature, uh, is that, you know, when we were going through sort of times where we were struggling to balance all of our priorities, uh, I always at, at, uh, would just sort of analyze and divide up responsibilities and then, try and maintain accountability so that we could sort of optimize Spread outcomes. Just a spreadsheet right? of yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean it was uh, and and I think <laughs> we have we've had the classic like girl boy arguments, right? Where he where he says, No, this is what I said and I said, It's not what you said, it's, it's how not you what said you it. meant or how you said right, it, right? Right. <laughs> it's how you said it. Yeah. 
I, I learned after several years that uh, I had to make a choice between being always right or always happy. <laughs> so, you know, it's like... Uh, that's a real... That's really good. Yeah. And like, so so above our kitchen table or above our kitchen sink, we have a, uh, uh, a biblical verse uh, from Corinthians. And I think everyone's sort of familiar with it, but it's, you know, it starts with love is patient, love is kind. And then at the end, it says it persists. But in between, uh, I think it gives like uh, something that, you know, when I read it the first time, I felt like I really had an epiphany and it says it records no wrongs, you know, and I think that that was something that, uh, you know, as someone who was really analytical and process oriented and looking to optimize, uh, you know, taking an approach to raising a family, uh, (laughs) you know, that's not the right way to be. Yeah, when you know you're trying to do it with uh, with a true partner. So I think that Katie's taught me uh, she's sort of the paradigm of empathy, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that you know she really just always looks at the positive uh, uh, in people, and uh, I mean it's contagious, uh, and I wasn't immune to it. Oh, that's, isn't that so well said? He, he is, from time to time, quite articulate. I know. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put down my notes now. All right, yeah. <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> I feel like. Let's go off script for a minute. Now we can talk about my criminal record. <laughs> you know, this idea of empathy, uh, brief shout out to the book Bring Them All, you know, made by one of our own, Don Stater, and 50, you know, 50th anniversary for ASAP. I get no right. kickbacks from mentioning this, but Katie is featured prominently in that book. And part of, among, I mean, it, uh, it's a book full of, you know, compelling stories, but I think yours, yours is particularly compelling for a number of reasons. But you touch on empathy in, in that book, and, and you touch on how there was a time in your training when you felt like that had been eroded mm-hmm. from you. Um, and how it took kind of a mindful effort to, um, to get that back or to not, or to, to stem the tide and eventually rebuild it. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah. I can't imagine a topic that's more yeah. relevant for us as emergency providers and, yeah. and in our field. I, I, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, and I've talked to residents a lot about this too, because I think whenever you feel like, and this happened to me in residency and whenever you feel like you're disconnected from the patient or your calling or why you went into medicine and and that can very much happen in emergency medicine um it doesn't only take away from your your work and how you treat patients and you know the kind of doctor you'd wanted to be but it really does start to chip away at the image you have of yourself and, and I think that that is often why physicians end up being very cynical. I always say the cynic is not the person who doesn't care. Like we know who that person looks like. Um, the cynic is the person who feels helpless and um, feels that their, their optimism has been disappointed and that they don't feel that they have control over that situation. And so I also tell them, you know, that I believe empathy is a muscle you have to exercise just like anything. That everybody who goes into, and it's any helping profession, I mean, whether it's police, fire, you know, emergency medicine, whatever, um, people go into those because teachers, they want to help others, right? They want to invest in others. And when that starts, that what you imagine that to be is dispelled, 
mm-hmm. everything starts to crumble around that. Mm-hmm. Like, who are you? Why, why did you decide to do this? Should I be a doctor? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not feeling, I don't like my patient in front of me, right? And that's a very common feeling. And I'm not going to tell you I love every patient, but I love 99% of my patients, right? And uh, I felt like there was this one day in residency, um, my second year, where I really wasn't feeling that with my work and when I was interacting with patients. And it was very disconcerting to me. And I said, I just don't want to, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be a doctor that's not enjoying that experience. And um, so right before I went into every room, I would tell myself, this is somebody, somebody. And this is about them. Um, And I had to do that for about a year before I didn't have to do it anymore. And I haven't had to do it since. (laughs) But uh, but I'm constantly reminding myself Mm -hmm. of that in real time, right? Um, You know, if I have, we we get a lot of rough characters at Denver Health. And I'll, I'll have people who are kind of complaining, you know, about certain patients and not, uh, and it's justified, you yeah. know, they can be abusive. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I'm also somebody of deep faith. And I say to myself in my head, Jesus in disguise, <laughs> because, you know, we, it is, it is a privilege to be able to take to me to take care of those people that nobody else really wants to take care of, mm-hmm. that I can make even more of a difference for somebody that's, um, being aggressive or uh, disrespectful or doesn't seem to want our help because uh, I'm going to try, whereas I think a lot of people might not. And and try to remember, and for me, a lot, what's become the biggest joy of medicine for me is getting to know people mm. and learning their story and connecting them on a, on a human level. Uh, we had a, I'll just give you an example. We had a guy once... He um, came in and he's homeless and was, you know, really just grumpy um, African American, eighty-year-old uh, guy who um, the resident came and presented him to me and said basically he was cold. You know, he doesn't really have any complaints. He has some underlying diagnosis of mild dementia, but uh, I guess we'll call social work, you know, and maybe get him some shoes. And I said, okay. So I went in to talk to him and. I, I do have, I'm not the fastest person in the world in the emergency department, <laughs> and this is why. I think I ended up in the room with him for an hour. I learned all about his life story, um, how he had grown up on this small island with um, 20 people on the island manning a lighthouse with his family. That was his family's work. He, um, his mom was um, smart enough to send him to um, the mainland or the United States to get educated in Florida. And he ended up getting a PhD. He became a concert pianist, traveled all over the world. I'm just fascinated. I mean, he actually introduced me to a lot of classical music that I wasn't aware of. Um, We ended up sending him to a respite, and I visited him there um, multiple times. And it just totally enriched Mm. my place in this world. And I think, I mean, I can, I feel like, you know, the more you exercise that, the more you can connect with people in a shorter and shorter amount of time. And so that to me is um, the medicine after a while is the medicine, right? Mm -hmm. And I think everybody's going to do, if they're a good doctor, they're going to do the same kind of medicine. Um, But that I I know when I first went into medicine, I thought, I just want to save one life, you know, and then that's it. And, and, I, and I realize now that it's really those moments that matter. We're always so focused on the end point, right, mm-hmm. and on the result. 
but there's a lot of people we can't we can't make that end result mm -hmm. good whether it's a new cancer diagnosis or they are homeless and and alcoholic but that moment matters when you're with them mm -hmm. um, it matters a lot to them I've come to find out in talking to them uh, that we don't have to solve everything but just to show our humanity and that we care about them is such a big gift and it's a gift to me as well because I get back so much from that in my work yeah I mean uh, <laughs> I, I feel I, like I talk too long no, after your question no I mean, you know how I interrupt Pete when he's that's that's when Pete's talking to that's a son. So <laughs> notice there was no interruption. I might cut off right I now. Really yeah, like for example, now go ahead, Katie. If you're I right. <laughs> I, but I do feel. Is this mic working? <laughs> is this, is Turned this it off. Working hours ago. I do feel passionately about this, mostly because I think there's so many of us that are missing mm -hmm. the that experience that's so rich and so I'm so grateful for it. Um, I, I don't know what I would do without it, honestly. And I, and I think we all can get it if we can block out the noise of all the other stuff that's frustrating and just focus in that moment on the person in front of us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I tend to be a bit more cynical uh, and maybe more practical uh, about sort of the realities that, that we deal with. Uh, I think Katie, by, by, by her nature, obviously you could glean, she's sort of eternally optimistic and she derives a lot of validation and meaning from uh, helping other people. At the same time, I've, I think that, you know, as a community ER physician who feels challenged by, you know, uh, issues of charting or, you know, maintaining throughput and patient satisfaction and, you know, the regulatory environment, I think that, you know, if, you lose perspective on sort of the, the the foundational aspect of the patient encounter, and you know you can't derive uh, true uh, meaning from helping two or three people on a shift. Then you know medicine is not going to be a good fit for you as a career. At the same time, the reality is that I think with some mindfulness and taking an approach that you know this is a person. I'm seeing them in a continuum of their life. They're clearly here uh, for some reason, uh, and I'm here to, you know, uh, at least alleviate some measure of suffering and perhaps have an opportunity to really improve their healthcare outcomes. I mean, I think that if you go in with that type of mantra and mindset, you will find that it is an immensely rewarding career in the end. I mean, you know, we have three kids uh, who grew up watching us sort of develop our careers and the two oldest ones have a demonstrated interest in medicine and actually emergency medicine and i think that that speaks volumes to the fact that you know uh you know even 20 years out uh with you know me being a community doctor that goes into basically the same setting every single day and you know, the, the job has changed in many ways uh, for the positive, but also uh, many things that are uh, negative. Uh, but yet I can still derive that immense satisfaction from, from the, uh, you know, that isolated encounter and helping several people every single day mm -hmm. that I show up, which, you know, when you compare that to other vocations, I mean, I think that, you know, in economics, they talk about, you know, opportunity costs, what else? what else would you be doing with your time and efforts? I mean, I think that there is 
you know, foundationally no more noble pr uh, profession. Uh, and, you know, I think that just the fact that this next generation of kids uh, sees it uh, as, uh, as that is, is I think, uh, a reflection of, you know, really what the profession could represent at its best. And, and I really think it, it, it's a millennial profession, honestly, in a lot of ways, because, uh, and I, you know, we, we, we have our finger on the pulse of what's happening in our community mm -hmm. way before we, you know, we know flu's hitting before we see it in the news. Absolutely. You know, we know there's an uptick of violence. We know there's a problem with homelessness. Um, substance, substance abuse, abuse, the opioid yep. epidemic. We saw, I mean, we're like, yeah, there's an opioid See epidemic. See it every day. Like, yep. Hello. <laughs> and so it, it, I think it, it really fits well for people who are also socially minded and, and want to be involved in almost um, social emergency medicine, mm -hmm. right, where they, they can not only have that inside view but be a really effective advocate because you can speak with um, authority and um, – credibility about what you're seeing every day come in and so that re I didn't realize I mean I went into emergency medicine because Peter was going to emergency medicine honestly I didn't know what I was going to do and he was like I'm doing emergency medicine you should do emergency medicine and, and Ron Ron, okay. Ron Walls who was my mentor at the time was like you should do emergency I was like okay I'm going to do emergency medicine and you know I, I believe I have a little guardian angel on my shoulder which got Pete to me and got me into emergency medicine because it really does it ended up exactly what I should be doing because I do um, gravitate to that social emergency mm -hmm. medicine um, side of things and it's I can't Im there's there's very few professions like that where you can really have that authentic voice mm -hmm. and, and be heard one thing I hear a lot from you and I you know Ryan and I my wife Ryan uh, came over for dinner you know we talked about meaning and and how you know and I've heard it come up just in the last couple of points talking points that you both have made and you both have come it's my impression that you both come to a sense of meaning in your professional and personal lives and then we've talked about how you foster that in your kids and it sounds like they to some component find meaning in in medicine and in the job but how, how have you fostered that in them you, you found it yourselves it's been a an intentional kind of mindful journey for you to find that. And you've reached that in your personal and professional lives, but how have you fostered that in your kids based on your common, common shared values? So, okay. First of all, I have to say one thing. Pete does this thing where he'll, he'll have like a night where we're going to talk about uh, homelessness. Right. And then watch, Seattle is dying, and then have an intellectual discussion about it afterward. Sometimes it's about a country, and then go to the to dinner for the you know at a at a restaurant that's that country. Really? Yeah. So and then we'll study the socioeconomics, <laughs> and then there'll be some. <laughs> that's amazing. He's like he's, he's tell me more about that. He's like a, he's Open like a question. constant teacher. I always tell him he should have gone to academics because he's such a natural teacher. But I mean, I think. The, we can talk about the specifics there, but sort of looking at it from a higher level, uh, I think that you know when we we're when Katie was first pregnant, uh, I felt like the responsibility of becoming a parent uh, was a bit overwhelming, and so, so you true to form. <laughs> Actually, he did. This is the jail. He this is the jail clubbing. story. This is how now, it begins. Jail comes later. <laughs> he literally started clubbing when I got pregnant. I was like eight, eight months pregnant, <laughs> and and I I come home from my shift, and he's like 
yeah, I'm going clubbing with the boys. And he would have these like shirts that were these shiny shirts. Pete has a jersey background. I jersey adapt, background. I adapt True story. to my environment. True story. I adapt to my environment. I'm like, go on, honey. Go have fun. Yeah, Put on I'm another chain, rest. Pete. Yeah, it looks great. Back in the day, I could rock the feather bow and the Elvis glasses, you know? <laughs> right now, I think people look at me funny. But back then... It lasted like People would mainly your daughters. <laughs> but... I, could, I, could, I could pull off sequins. <laughs> So, so anyway, so, so there were some times when like, I wasn't especially focused on preparing for parenting, like the club, LA club scene for mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. six to nine months. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I remember reading uh, a book on parenting, uh, and what I took away from it is that, you know, you, uh, you, you teach your kids values, you teach your kids life skills, you foster them, their self-esteem, which I've translated into the notion of self-efficacy. Mm. Uh, and then that translates into a passion for life. And I think that those things are really difficult uh, to sort of do in sort of a structured manner. Uh, and what I've tried to do is just live by example. And I think Katie does that uh, immeasurably well. I mean, ultimately, I mean, you know, and this has been my experience with uh, my kids growing up is they see through mm-hmm. hypocrisy. Uh, and if you're not coming home from work and talking about sort of the positives uh, about uh, uh, the benefits of helping other people uh, and, you know, they have all of these other external influences where their meaning could come from, you know, money or power or some sort of stature uh if they're not seeing that meaning comes from you know a more holistic perspective on your role uh from from you the way you live your life every day uh then i think it's never going to translate to them and i mean i think that anyone who's been a parent would would identify with that you know that you know you can't do it through you know curated experience uh and i I do do stuff like that because I, do do. <laughs> because I think that especially <laughs> in our setting with our socioeconomics, if you don't have sort of a diversity of experience, then you don't have a perspective on how much other people struggle. Mm. And the fact that, uh, you know, the world has, you know, spreads equal talents, but it doesn't spread equal opportunity. Uh, and I think that if, so if you mm-hmm. don't, mm-hmm. if, if you don't expose your kids to that, then they, they, they don't get that perspective. And I mean, a lot of that comes, I think, from my upbringing, um, but it's certainly been something that has been potentiated by, you know, Katie's worldview. Pete, you're a first generation American. Tell me about how, I mean, tell me about how that has shaped you. And it, I mean, it's starting to already come out in your answers, but tell me. Sure. You've, you've clearly thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh, I didn't think about it growing up, but in retrospect, uh, I think it proves foundational. Um, I think so. So just so I can give you sort of the framework, uh, my parents uh, were uh, professors at university in Bratislava, which is now the capital of Slovakia, mm-hmm. uh, and. It was the late 60s, uh, you know, obviously that was Czechoslovakia at that time was an Eastern Bloc country under sort of uh, Soviet rule with a, uh, basically a puppet government. Uh, in Czechoslovakia, there were some overtures on uh, democracy. 
Uh, and then in sort of a sentinel event uh, called the Prague Spring in 1968, Russian tanks uh, came into the capital of Prague. Uh, famously, uh, there was a, a person who set themselves on fire. Uh, you know, it was much... Unbearable you know, lightness of being. Think of that. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. And my parents, and especially my dad, you know, who was uh, someone who was always idealized America and its freedoms, mm -hmm. uh, found, you know, you know, told my mom that, you know, uh, I can't raise my kids in, in this type of environment. And so uh, what he did was, you know, he, he, he said that, you know, he would try and escape as a political refugee. And uh, because of sort of circumstances, you know, they didn't have any family uh, uh, in anywhere else in the world, all my family, uh, and to this day, everyone is uh, still in either the Czech Republic or the Slovak Republic. Um, but my dad uh, emigrated uh, uh, as a political refugee uh, and settled. Uh, his first place was in Harlem, uh, and he got a job as an, uh, sort of a grunt engineer, uh, made enough money, uh, and then sort of was able to communicate with my mom uh, that she should uh, try and uh, escape as well. Um, so, and my mom, you know, they had already had, uh, my oldest sister, Sue, uh, at the time. Uh, so she was eight. My mom, you know, uh, uh, at that time was, uh, potentially going for a PhD. Um, so one of the few women engineers in that whole country, uh, that was going to be a PhD candidate at that time. And they gave her an opportunity to go across the border to Vienna, which is right across from Bratislava, and uh, with her child, uh, which was sort of an extraordinary circumstance. And so they were uh, in uh, a refugee camp there for several months uh, until they were able to get uh, entry into the United States. Uh, and then they joined my dad and then soon after moved to uh, Queens. Uh, so that's where I was born. Uh, just a year and a half uh, later, uh, my sister was born in between. So they had three young kids living sort of a gritty life. Uh, my mom uh, was, barely spoke the language. Here she was, someone who was highly accomplished, uh, had stature certainly uh, in her sort of local society. And she had uh, the most menial job uh, that uh, uh, an engineering firm had could have, which is just doing the drawings. So she couldn't practice to her degree. Uh, someone took her in uh, and offered her that basically uh, minimum wage. Uh, and so fast forward a little bit. Uh, my sister is struggling uh, in that environment in the New York public school system. Uh, my parents are struggling financially, two parents uh, both working kids going to daycare during the day, but my mom knew that, you know, it would not end up well uh, if my oldest sister uh, was still in that environment with uh, uh, the, the negative influences, and uh, it was really starting to impact her uh, in a fundamental way. So uh, she basically said that we, we have to move to a place where they have at least a good school system. Uh, and so we moved to northern Jersey, uh, which is where I grew up uh, from age 5 to 18. Uh, and I would say that, you know, on the, I mean, you know, Im immigrants, I think, succeed for a variety of reasons. 
but retrospectively, when I think about it, the things that motivated me were that on the one hand, there was a profound sense of instability, financial, social, mm. not a lot of cult cultural supports, no, no family to rely on. Um, so there was that instability and uncertainty and the, the pathway uh, out, as it were, was to get an education. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, there was a sense of, I think, potency uh, and ability, uh, knowing that my parents were these literally highly successful, like at the top of uh, academia mm -hmm. uh, in their country. Uh, so I knew, at least within me, uh, that potential existed. So I would say that the dichotomy of, you know, profound instability in your environment and a, and a true sense of sort of personal accountability in terms of the opportunity that was uh, given to you. Uh, I think that, you know, those types of things, I mean, if you look at like Indian Americans of our generation now, uh, I think that that is, uh, uh, and then before that, uh, I think uh, Southeast Asian Americans uh, I mean, I think it just sort of plays itself in that, mm. you know, you have these kids that are growing up in households where they see their parents, you know, working their fingers to the bone. So they get this sense, uh, you know, they get the work ethic, uh, but yet they see their family struggle financially uh, and, you know, in other ways, uh, all the things that come with that, uh, with financial insecurity. Uh, and I think it ultimately just sort of translates into, you know, diligence, hard work, and then delayed gratification, you know, mm. this understanding that, you know, you have to work hard for the future. And I, what, what I think it's translated for me is, I think on the one hand, a profound sense that, you know, opportunities are not equivalent, right? Uh, I mean, my sister who grew up in the same household never went to college. Uh, there was a period of time uh, when she struggled uh, with, you know, not just only her academics, but, you know, there was a period of time when she ran away from home at 16. There was an early pregnancy. There were some uh, other things that you could sort of surmise. Uh, and yet here I am just several years later growing up in a comfortable sort of lower middle class or middle class uh, environment with a good academic system. And I feel like all of that opportunity was there uh, for me, yeah. you know? And, and would you be the same if it hadn't been for your older sister? Oh, that, I, I definitely don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I mean, you know, that it, it gives you a real sense that, you know, you can't take that uh, opportunity for granted, right? Uh, and then, you know, where I grew up in Northern Jersey, I mean, uh, that was another sort of, I would say, extraordinary uh little microcosm of uh, uh, what the world should be like. I mean, the reality was uh, on my street was it was a, it was a cul-de-sac and every single family on the cul-de-sac was first generation Americans. Wow. There was Orthodox Jews next to a Dutch and German immigrant next to us, next to a Taiwanese immigrant, next to a Colombian immigrant. Uh, Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans, uh, next to them, next to them were Pakistani, next to them were Greek immigrants, <laughs> loud. Uh, and then, and then, and I then, the, the fifth. <laughs> and then, and then as if on cue, uh, 
the there was uh, the end house, which was the only pool, which is an above ground pool where all of the kids would hang out with, was uh, like a fiesta every weekend because because it was a gay Puerto Rican couple. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? It's you could not script that. No, and and here the you American had this sense of yeah, here you had life. this yeah, here you had this sense of all of these people coming here uh, for opportunity, and then you know. Uh, then they would go into this, uh, you know, good public school system where they got exposed to, you know, our town was, I would say, the least affluent. The other three towns, some of the most affluent towns in northern Jersey. So I would say that, you know, the juxtaposition of, you know, you had a bunch of sort of smart kids from lower middle class, and now they were exposed to a bunch of really affluent kids that, uh, you sort of learned some of the soft skills. Yeah. <laughs> this is where Pete gets his edge. There's a theme. <laughs> I did have a nice VCR back then. He stole stuff. <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, I, I would say that it was just sort of this uh, uh, environment that fostered personal accountability, but also sort of a profound understanding that the environment that you uh, grow up in makes uh, a big impact on the opportunities that you get. Which and I mean that that to me animates a lot of the things that motivate me now. Yeah, how do you almost manufacture that in a way to your kids? I mean, I mean, it would be great to, in actuality, living in in a community like that. But in the absence of being able to do so, you take you you have a night where you have um, Pakistan night and then you go to dinner at yeah. Pakistan. Bollywood, Bollywood movies are incredible. Bollywood movies. Oh my God! Watch Jab We Met. Anybody out there? It's totally. <laughs> Every time somebody's complaining, I'm like, Jab We Met. Just watch Jab We Met. I got some incredible dance moves from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. little dilly dilly dong. <laughs> uh, the other thing I would say is, you know. <laughs> I have to step away from the mic to laugh. Look how pleased with himself. Yeah, he part two of this is a, is a video podcast. <laughs> I, I host this podcast because I have a face made for radio, but we'll put Pete on. We'll put on some that, supplemental video. He he he's being extremely <laughs> humble. This guy this guy must loofah twice a day. His skin he is does impeccable. Have good skin. He like, has re- and teeth. Good teeth. Good teeth. Yeah, good stock. You gonna kick him in the calves now? This guy's <laughs> maybe. Check his <laughs> lower lip. No, Ryan's doing well. <laughs> I married up. Pete knows, the, Pete knows the feeling. We know the move. But, we know the move. But we, we also, I mean, I've also had, um, and Pete too, you know, have integrated them into things that um, I do with the programs that I oversee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really also given them a lot of perspective on things coming into that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, another quote. Which, which off I'm, the cuff, no I'm script. I'm here. I'm True story. <laughs> He's not I'm reading checking this. Checking my laminated sheet. <laughs> uh, it was definitely one of the founding fathers. I think it was John Adams. Uh, he talked about being like a, a political statesman and a lawmaker, so that his kids could have liberty. And then he said, uh, you know, with that liberty, uh, my kids can study, you know, mathematics and the sciences. Uh, and then with that sort of stability that his grandkids could study things like poetry and art. Mm. And I think that that's, that's sort of a little bit of the American dream, right? I mean, you had my dad who found it insufferable to raise his kids in a country that did not have liberty. 
picks up, whole family comes here for that opportunity. I perceive the fact that that opportunity is like no other place in the world, in human history. And I work really hard to create some stability. And then, you know, I think we project to our kids that, you know, with that liberty and with that, you know, stability, with, you know, loving family, social, you know, and maybe a safety net in terms of financial support, you know, they have to go out there and take the opportunities that were given to them and, you know, advance that cause. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that, you know, in this day and age of polarized politics, especially with regards to immigration policy, I think that people should take a step back and really understand the no one is really more American than immigrants, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I always, I always say, I wonder what God put me on this earth for. And, um, you know, now I know it's to make them. <laughs> right, they're gonna be, they're gonna pay it forward. Katie, your faith is powerful. I know it's an important part of your guys's family. And how have you both seen your faith and or spiritual journey grow concurrently with your professional practice? I, I, I mean, I, personally speaking, I, I think there are f very few venues, potentially excluding, uh, you know, the actual priesthood or. Uh, you know, directly related to fostering someone's spiritual growth. But there are fewer, there's very few venues I can imagine there's a more spiritual experience than being in the emergency department in terms of meeting people at their point of being most vulnerable, mm -hmm. potentially that they've ever been. Mm -hmm. uh, meeting people, you know, you talk about themes of suffering or pain or true joy or relief, and those things exist on a magnified scale in our day-to-day -day practice more so than potentially anywhere else. And how has that interacted and molded your faith and your spiritual lives? And, and then in turn, because I know that in turn trickles down to your family. How have you seen that take, take shape? It's a light question. It's very, yeah, yeah. very easy. Um, you know, I, I like empathy. I think that's something you exercise, right? And so I always say, you know, God's all around us. We just don't always recognize it. And there are those moments, and a lot of times there are moments in the emergency department where something happens and it just feels like it's bigger than coincidence. Um, we had a woman who came. She was traveling through Denver on a bus across country. She started to get belly pain. Um, she was developmentally delayed pretty significantly. Ended up she was in labor. And I got, I was working on the pediatric side and got called over because they, uh, to resuscitate the baby. They didn't, I mean, she didn't even know she was pregnant. And um, this, you know, beautiful, we didn't know how many weeks she was, nothing, right? She was crowning and it was happening. And this beautiful little girl comes out <laughs> and basically I just dried her. I mean, I, she, you know, it wasn't a lot of work. Shook some hands. <laughs> Exactly. Signed some autographs. I did it. Smoking yeah. cigars. Walked in. <laughs> yeah. Let's have some scotch. <laughs> and um and I and uh, we had um, one of our uh, nurse educators on the pediatric side had been trying to have a baby for a long time and got on the foster to adopt list, 
and um, called me the next day and said, you know that baby you delivered yesterday? I said, well, I don't know if I'd really claim that, but okay. Yeah, I was there. <laughs> uh, she said, I'm her new mom. And she would, had, was the next person on the list. Wow. Um, and got, got Maddie now, who, uh, gosh, she's got to be 10 by now. And, um, you know, that I, it's just, I think you have to savor those moments and recognize them and acknowledge them. And they're all around us, honestly. I mean, every time a patient hugs me and says, just thank you, uh, I, I see God in that. And, and I, I think, I do believe God is love. <laughs> and so the more, um, I think the more we look and the more we see it, it certainly builds my faith. And, and I get so much back from that. And I think it starts to feed on itself, too. Mm-hmm. So it, if anything, it, um, it confirms my faith. And, and even during tragedy, I think there are things that we can do uh, that, you know, I, I had a patient the other day who we admitted who um, had end-stage cancer and just being able to talk to the family and get them to a, the place where they felt okay making her DNR and the, the gratefulness around that and trying to help them deal with their emotions. One of the men... Um, you know, really loving family, had to keep stepping out because he was clearly going to cry. And I said, you know, and there were other younger guys in the room and boys, and I said, um, you know, you got to feel it. And he goes, how do I do that? And I said, the first step is not leaving the room because they have to see that it's okay to feel that too. And, and he did. He kind of let it out. And it was this really beautiful moment, even in the setting of um, something super sad that, you know, all of us sort of recognized that God was in the room. Hmm. And, it, and it wasn't me who said it that time. But I, I find I find the presence of God all the time when I'm working. Does that answer your question? It does. It does <laughs> powerfully. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I tend to be a bit more rational or a bit more skeptical. Uh, I think that... I think I'm very rational. I'm also... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's not being rational. I, I would, yeah, uh, I think that that's accurate. Uh, I mean, I would just sort of look at it from a perspective that, you know, many of the sort of great religions of history, uh, be it Hinduism or Confucianism or Islam or Christianity or Judaism, I mean, the, the values that they represent are universal human values mm-hmm. and moral values. And, you know, whether or not you do it through uh, a the vessel of organized religion uh, and whatever type of scripture you use as a foundation of that. The reality is that if you study sort of the universal tenets of all of those things, that it's really, I mean, whether it, it, it I would say foundationally uh, creates good people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that if we view sort of what binds us together uh, and I don't want to sound Pollyanna, uh, or naive, I, I, I work in the trenches for sure, and I'm generally very reality-based, but I think that you know, thinking about it from that idealistic perspective is really something that uh, you know, allows you to sort of be tolerant to other people mm-hmm. and their perspectives and meeting, meeting them where they're at, and you know, I think it uh, creates a certain idealism that's necessary and a world where it's easy to become cynical about human nature. Yeah. It's protective. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then, and I mean, look, what's the alternative in that regard, right? Yeah, Pascal's wager, right? What do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. You have a lot to win. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is my guy, but <laughs> I love him. But I, you know, I do believe that God is smarter than we are, and he manifests in lots of different ways, and that um, all, all of those religions, ha- they have that commonality for a reason. It's not by accident. Mm-hmm. And that um, we, you know, God knows how we're going to connect with him based on our background and culture and, you know, place on this earth. Right. Important time. I'm going to push it one step further, which is to say people challenge me or ask me, well, what, what is the purpose in suffering? You know, you see, we see suffering of the highest order and for patients, for their families, for us, for our staff, for they, there's suffering and it's a, it's every shift. And, you know, that's a, I don't know that I have an answer to that, but uh, I have my thoughts. But, I, you know, how do you, how do you... What are your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> my, I'm taking over now. No, it's, you know, my, my thoughts are, you know, we were each, we each found ourselves where we are because of an infinite number of small events and influences and people who have sacrificed for us and committed to us and... Uh, guided us intentionally and unintentionally to where we are. And I think that we each bring a diversity of experience. And the purpose of interacting with people in their moment of suffering, to me, is to uh, is to reinforce our common humanity and to say that uh, I don't. it doesn't matter in the emergency department where you came from before you came in the ambulance bay door. And None of us get off this earth alive. Right. <laughs> And one room to the next to the next, you can cross the entire social, economic, racial, ethnic, any spectrum that you can imagine from room to room to room. And there is a shared commonality in the human experience of suffering and pain yeah. Yeah. And, and joy and truth and, and goodness and, and, and things that are, you know, are genuinely, you know, to be aspired to. But I think that you know, the, the purpose of suffering is to, is to remind us of our common humanity and, um, and to, to foster in us a sense of taking care of one another. Um, that's my personal interpretation, but you guys are much more articulate than I am. And I ask the no, questions was... around here. Uh, so I'll be doing the questions from now on. But, <laughs> no, but... I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I think the way I look at it is very similarly. I, I, I think, you, suffering brings grace and there's a reason why when we you know when many people do get a, a really horrible diagnosis they seek God um, or when we're struggling we think about our spirituality um, and so there's a purpose for it and I think it does draw us closer to each other and therefore closer to God because God is happy when we're closer to each other and mm-hmm. we're caring for each other. Um, I also believe that, um, you know, from God's perspective, and I'm not, don't pretend to know what God thinks, <laughs> but this is the way I've compartmentalized it, that, um, you know, this, this world is a drop in the bucket of eternity. And so, yes, he allows things to happen that, are, that create suffering to which do bring us closer to him. But in the grand scheme of eternity, you know, he's saying, 
don't worry, I got you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> um, I it's mean, it's gonna be, it's gonna be more logical. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it's just you know, suffering's the reality, mm-hmm. and the question is how we respond to it. And I think that if we look at it as, I mean, the the Buddhist tenet is embrace adversity, right? And I think that uh, if you want to take it from a religious perspective, there's definitely sort of parables. uh, But, I mean, just from a evolutionary anthropology perspective, I mean, the reality is that if we're pushing at the cusp of progress, then inevitably uh, there's going to be gains and there's going to be losses. And with that, people are going to suffer. And I think that, you know, I'm speaking more of sort of challenges and failures and dealing with anxiety uh, for people trying to accomplish things. Mm. I mean, from a medical perspective, I don't think that there's, you know, the, 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 there's no real value to suffering. Uh, but, I mean, if it exists as a reality, then I think it's a, a, a noble vocation to try and alleviate that. Mm. So I think your guys' complementary relationship, with an I and an E, but focusing on the complementary <laughs> part of it, you know, I think you have found your practice environments that suit you, right? I mean, I, and I think to what extent was that a an intentional decision coming out of training? To what extent did you have maybe a mentor that told you, Pete, you're suited for a community hospital, or Katie, you you're a great teacher. Yeah, you should go into academics. It was actually more Pete, the other way around. Pete, honestly. you should just get any job you can. <laughs> I'm speaking hypotheticals yes. here, but, <laughs> but I, you know, I think that decision is one that is you know, ubiquitous amongst our listeners. I would imagine, and and there, yeah. and is among the hardest ones we make in the over the course of our career. And any insights you guys have about how you made that initial decision and how that's been kind of validated over the years, I think would be really helpful. Yeah, you want to start? Um, why don't you start? Okay. I mean, from from my perspective, uh, making a choice uh, of sort of an academic route versus a community route, uh, I would say a significant portion of it was sort of the lifestyle, uh, the ability to have sort of a set schedule that would allow us to balance family uh, was really important to me. Um, that was a big part of the decision to do emergency medicine as well, uh, certainly for me. Uh, you know, uh, there was a financial difference as well. So just sort of thinking practically, uh, I mean, there was a, at that time uh, probably a 50% difference in terms of uh, compensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of it stemmed from, you know, I think my desire for stability, Uh whether or not it be stability of schedule, the financial stability it afforded. Uh, I mean, to me, it, it, was, it was really unnerving to grow up in a household where there was constant uh, uh, struggle over finances. Hmm. And I saw uh, how much of a toll it took on my parents and how it impacted their happiness and how that translated in, uh, to sort of you know, the, the way they interacted with their kids at times. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I was really drawn to the stability of community medicine. At the same time, uh, I was, I mean, I feel like I'm a very curious person. Uh, I mean, like, like a lot of us who 
do medicine and I think specifically emergency medicine, sort of the diversity of uh, disciplines, uh, even within emergency medicine. And, you know, there, I think it would be, you know, there was a, a, a potential intellectual upside in terms of doing academic emergency medicine. But I didn't have a, you know, passionate academic pursuit at the time. Um, I had sort of dabbled a bit. I'd taken some coursework at uh, UCLA Extension School in medical informatics. Hmm. So I sort of had my eye on uh, sort of uh, technological solutions uh, to healthcare problems, but it wasn't enough of a draw. Uh, so it, I think it was, you know, a lot of it was sort of the stability, which I think stemmed from uh, my upbringing. Yeah, I'm, I don't think about things as much as he does. I'm more of a gut person. Uh, and, and for me, I think I just thought in my head that I wanted to be at a county type of hospital, um, you know, that took care of a lot of indigent care, mm -hmm. and that tends to cohort with teaching centers. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I love teaching, and I love my residents, but it was really more the patient population that I was drawn to. And Katie was validated uh, a lot in terms of sort of, you know, handpicked as sort of uh, someone who would be uh, thrive in an academic environment in a way that I wasn't. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, she was selected as chief resident. You know, uh, she won the uh, med school emergency medicine award, uh, which was obviously given by academics there. So, you know, uh, I think people saw uh, her intellectual prowess and then they knew that with her passion that that would translate into sort of a meaningful academic career and with her as always was Pete. <laughs> the award-winning dr bakes so that reminds me of that you should tell please do please tell tell our listeners the background so, of that story so from about 2000 let's say 7 to 2013 it was a pretty dark time in the bakes household <laughs> Uh, I this went was to a do time a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. Oh no, this was after that. Oh, this after was after that. that. Sorry, this is the award-winning Dr. Bates. Oh, you know, so uh, not only was she award-winning in medical school and residency, <laughs> but the hit list uh, rolls on. <laughs> so uh, some sometime around like 2006 or seven, when the kids were just getting cognitive at like five or six. <laughs> We'd, you know, on the nightstand, there'd be the 5280 magazine with Denver's top doctors, right? And, you know, they'd be sort of thumbing through that. And they're like, oh, here's here's mommy. And then they'd look down a little further and they'd be like... Wait, they have the same last name. There's only Where's one. Where's daddy? He should be right next to mommy. So This is about the same time got, when um, Pete got arrested. She got, 52, <laughs> she got 5280 top doc, something like three years in a row. She also got... Uh, Denver Business Journal puts out a 40 under 40. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, between the nightstand and the various <laughs> award ceremonies, you know. Uh, the red carpet it, it galas. Started to sit, it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, exaggerating. So, so, so uh, they knew it was irking me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> so, so they started calling her uh, the award-winning Dr. Bakes. <laughs> and me, like Pete or you, uh, so, so that was like seven years. And then, and then I got like a little bit like butt hurt. So, so I'd, I'd bring home like these thank you notes from nurses that are super sweet, but it was like, Hey Pete, I liked working with you on shift, you know, Amanda. And then I'd like, and I'd show them 
And even as like <laughs> like precognitive five year olds, they would sort of. My oldest kid would just you know she's she she was always like want to you know make me happy so she'd be like uh, that's that's great dad in like a broken voice and then my more skeptical uh, uh middle kid would just sort of look at me with like a frowned face like like dude bro you're trying too hard it, it's not a good look <laughs> so 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 that was until like 2013 or something <laughs> I don't think Katie stopped winning awards. I mean, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I have to break out like my soccer trophy from like eighth grade. <laughs> you North, won the championship. Maybe. North Jersey, right? third place. We took them. We took them. Yep. The fighting. <laughs> Did Pasquale's uh, deli? deli? <laughs> yeah. So that's my lot in life, though. <laughs> It's a tough road you've chosen. A rewarding, but tough road. <laughs> Let's talk about what keeps you guys busy out of the hospital. We touched early on, you know, kind of some of your extra clinical pursuits and just kind of tell me what gives you passion outside of taking care of patients um, and, uh, and, and how that's grown over the years. Pete, you can start. Yeah, this will be short. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll come back for part two of the podcast here in just a few minutes. And Kate, Katie can spend the last hour and a half uh, talking about her pursuits. So I would say uh, for me, you know, aside from sort of just trying to be uh, uh, present in the moment for my kids uh, and doing my clinical shifts, uh, I'm involved in two uh, projects sort of longitudinally. One is a pipeline program that we started at Nate, actually, who's our sound guy, uh, was pivotal uh, for that first year. Uh, and now we're entering our third year. And basically, uh, the way it's structured is uh, it's work-based learning uh, for kids that are uh, underserved population. Uh, so we work with a high school uh, here in Denver. Uh, and you know, the first semester we have about 30 kids, second semester, we have a more intensive experience for six kids and they get a, uh, medical curriculum, uh, to go through, uh, uh, through their coursework. Um, their teacher, uh, uh teaches a course called biomedical sciences. And the concept is that they get some, you know, uh, uh, foundational knowledge that then they'll implement in sort of a work-based environment. So I would say it's somewhere in between like actually vocational training mm -hmm. for a specific skill and sort of the abstracted either liberal arts or STEM curriculum that you see in uh, uh, other high schools uh, uh, that are their peers. Uh, and with that uh, uh, background, then they come and they do uh, a bunch of uh, shadowing shifts uh, with providers at all different levels of the hospital, be it doctors, PAs, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, uh, 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 radiology techs, just so they can glean, you know, sort of the, the landscape of the hospital ecosystem and the different roles that are available. And the fact is that, you know, many of these kids don't have the opportunity to go to, you know, a four-year private institution uh, with the attendant costs. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, they can get uh, college credits during their coursework. They get a sense of, you know, what the medical profession really entails. 
And I think it animates uh, their passion uh, for working harder in school and it gives them a pathway uh, to those careers. And what we've seen this next year uh, uh, or this last year is that, you know, of the uh, six students, uh, three or four of them are going on to medical careers. And mm. the feedback we've gotten was that, you know, it really opened their eyes to the fact that, you know, there's a lot of really substantial work that's meaningful that uh, is uh, good middle-class paying jobs uh, for uh, kids from, from their backgrounds. And, you know, it's that whole uh, trajectory that we want for, you know, these disadvantaged kids largely come from households that don't speak English where their parents emigrated and they've been given this sort of opportunity, but they haven't had some of the sort of soft skills of, you know, mentoring and networking and really didn't see themselves in sort of uh, middle class or upper middle class uh, uh, socioeconomic strata. And I mean, you know, that that's what we're intending to do. So technically what we're, we're career coaches mm -hmm. uh, for the Denver Public School and uh, under a grant from the Department of Education uh, called Youth Career Connect, which tries to pair kids uh, into uh, jobs in the community that have a sort of demonstrated need. Uh, and what we are is sort of a liaison between the public school system and that those private sector jobs. How did you get into it? So it was a relationship that Katie fostered. I mean, you know, Katie's involved in a ton of these different programs. And, you know, David uh, is a public school teacher that teaches this course. CEC. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, CEC, early college. Mm. Um, and, you know, she thought I'd hit Big it. Big Mac, shout out. Big Mac. Shout him out. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's how I got into it. And I mean, you know, I mean, obviously you've sort of gleaned from what we've talked about. I mean, it's a lot of the things that from my upbringing that resonate, right? You have these kids where there's, there's definite talent and potential and they just need to be put in an environment that where they have a sense that this world is for them. Right. And I mean, we focus on professionalism and personal accountability and, you know, in a lot of ways, they have to work harder uh, to take advantage of those opportunities. But on the flip side, the adversity they suffer uh, should give them sort of strength mm -hmm. and a sense of personal uh, efficacy mm -hmm. and, you know, conviction. Conviction. So, I mean, to me, that's sort of what, what, what as mentors for people in those types of communities, we should be potentiating, which is we're, we're, we're going to create those opportunities and you need to take advantage of them. And we're going to be here, here uh, to mentor you uh, and, you know, hopefully down the road to help network. Uh, a lot of the things that, you know, kids from other socioeconomic strata sort of benefit from uh, either explicitly or implicitly. Sure. Um, but, you know, ultimately, if, you know, it just sort of resonates with uh, this notion that we're a country that's a meritocracy and, you know, people should have the equal opportunity to achieve. Our specialties in our community are destined to benefit from that. That's 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 great work. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Pete, and thanks, Katie, for really getting it started. It sounds like it was your connection <laughs> that got it off the ground <laughs> in a off. shock to no one. He but took off. <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing I'm involved with, uh, which is actually sort of getting rebooted now, is uh, a company called R Explainer, uh, and so this sort of appeals to my sort of. Uh, entrepreneurial, uh, 
specifically with regards to tech solutions in healthcare. Uh, and basically, uh, me and you know Dylan and Chris, uh, who are two Dylan of our Lydon. partners here. Chris Holmes, shout out. Shout out. Respect. Shout out. Respect. <laughs> Uh, Respect. So the, th- the three of us for the last several years, <laughs> the last uh, several years have been working on sort of a web app that facilitates communication between providers like doctors and nurses with patients to help them navigate the, their care. Uh, I mean, our use case is in the emergency room and it's specifically geared towards a pediatric emergency room. But, you know, an example of it would be, you know, an anxious kid coming into the pediatric ER and they, they're they going to get an IV. And, you know, obviously the there's that's a, a highly stressful situation for parent and child. And basically we have sort of a suite of videos, uh, including uh, a pediatric IV start video. So it's under this category of child life, which is, mm. you know, giving kids imagery and language uh, that they can relate to to help alleviate their stress. So basically, you know, we do a simulated IV start in a child their age uh, and the child is interacting uh, on camera, uh, uh, not reciprocally, but talking to the camera as if they're talking to the patient. And, you know, it makes a big difference, I think, in terms of helping uh, kids through this stressful time. I mean, ultimately down the road, you know, our notion is that great healthcare is great communication and, you know, shared decision-making with patients on resource utilization, helping them understand the risk benefits and alternatives of TPA and stroke, mm. uh, you know, discharge instructions, all of those things are, you know, I think amenable to being delivered uh, cost effectively, time effectively uh, uh, to to patients on this this type of technological platform. I see, I see, I see your eyes are glazing over there, Nick. <laughs> They're not glazing over. It's not true. That's not true. Last night. <laughs> That's probably why <laughs> he's tired. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating, and I think it's wanna, the next part. Put your too. head down. You take over. You take over. <laughs> I was waiting for this opportunity. I'm expendable in this podcast. <laughs> All right, so Katie. No, that, Pete. That's it's, it. Is interesting. I mean, I think it's the next frontier of of our practice, right? I mean, I think being able to communicate in by means that are that are knowable to to the next generation of folks. I mean, I think that so much of what we do to to explain things to people and to participate in that process of shared decision-making with them is outdated. And yeah, uh, there's just such a gap between, uh, in terms of and, nu- nu- you know, numerical literacy or numeracy. Yeah. And is that a word? <laughs> numeracy? Numer- I'm, I'm yeah. nodding. Yes. It is. Sure. It is now. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, and, and just yeah, like you said, risk benefit of our, the innumerable number of tests we can order. And I think displaying that in a way yeah. that's understandable is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the concept is to, you know, give a framework for the patient to understand it and, you know, language uh, uh, that they that, that resonates with them. And then the physician or nurse comes in for a higher yield encounter where they say, okay, well, in your particular case, this is what we see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, instead of sort of them, 
trying to comprehend what the term TIA is. They already have sort of a graphic representation of what it represents. They've had a chance to, you know, view a several minute video and they have sort of a framework for having that sort of higher level discussion, uh, which, you know, I mean, I think it benefits patients in terms of, you know, allowing them to make decisions that are consistent with their values and mm -hmm. preferences. And it also goes a long way towards, you know, mitigating uh, defensive medicine uh, for physicians, uh, where you know they can they can uh, practice more cost effectively with the patient and franchise in that process. Thank you. <laughs> Coming to an ER near you. So, someday someone will uh, succeed at that. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, you're up next. Um. So, I. I think I told you I'm, I'm kind of a gut person. So mm -hmm. I think when I see something that needs to be done, that tends to be what I gravitate towards. Uh, so when I first got to Denver Health, um, and you know, I think a lot of a lot of people who are starting their career think about this, like what, it, what do I wanna do with my career? And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm not somebody who goes, oh, okay, this is where I wanna be in 10 years. That's not who I am right where I am at this moment, wh what is it that I see that, that needs help? And so when I first got to Denver Health, um, started ACES, which is Art, Chaos, Ethics, and Science in Medicine for the residents to talk about um, what it means to be a doctor outside of just taking care of patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was really meaningful to me and because I felt like it, it was something that was needed and that was received in the way I had hoped, you know, that people said, yeah, we need more of this in our they, residency. They'd always experience. meet in our basement and, like, <laughs> leave the toilet seat up and there'd be red wine stains, so. But it, we, it we wasn't, what it, happens it at wasn't Aces, all high and noble. What happens exactly. at Aces stays at Aces. Exactly. Right. But we had some cool stuff, Raucous. you know, like. Um, <laughs> Sorted affair, that Aces. <laughs> Peter, Peter Rosen came a couple times to our house to talk with the residents, and, um, you know, we talk about, what is it like taking care of patients who are aggressive or um, abusive or, you know, substance abuse stuff, dealing with death? You know, what, 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 is it, what does it mean when you don't like your patient? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and things that we don't talk about very often. And it was a safe space to be able to talk about that. Um, and no, no microaggressions there. <laughs> and... and uh, and then um, started the SANE program at Denver Health. Um, uh, around that time, also heard that Children's was going to be moving. So um, went to my CEO at the time, Patty Gabo, who I'm super grateful for as a mentor because I, I said, I think we need to start a pediatric emergency department at Denver Health because Children's is moving. And we at that time, we were sending all our sick kids over there after stabilizing them, and they were mixed with adults. Uh, I, I remember this one moment when... Uh, a three-year-old and his parents were next to a, a guy in an orange jumpsuit that was cursing and rattling his um, cuffs on the gurney and started peeing on the floor right next to um, this three-year-old. And I thought, God, we really could use the pediatric This PD. is suboptimal. Yeah, yeah. Now, the three-year-old loved it. He was like, Loved it. See? He thought it was so it's great. It's not a big deal. <laughs> right. Mom is so judgy. Parents, not so much. This guy seems to be thriving. With the potty training. He the potty training. <laughs> I know, he doesn't enough use with the that. toilet. Enough with that. Um, and so and so went to her, and she was great in supporting me to go and do a fellowship and come back. And 
um, you know, work with a team to set up the pediatric emergency department. And then when I got to the, in that role, I was directing, medical director there for five years, um, started to become more conscious of the problems we were having with youth violence in the community and gang-related violence and uh, sort of got involved with GRASP, the Gang Rescue and Support Project, a community grassroots organization that's been around for 35 years, I think. Um, and so decided I really needed to hand off my work being medical director of the PZD because I wanted to focus on this now. Um, and after that, started um, AIM, At-Risk Intervention Mentoring, which is our hospital-based violence intervention program. Uh, so, I mean, I would say the things that, yes, I was responding to things I saw, but it was also what I needed, mm -hmm. right? And, and made, I, I, I think I wouldn't be able to do emergency medicine anymore if I didn't have that latitude. And I'm super grateful for folks like Dr. Gabo and Phil Mailer, who was our um, chief clinical officer at Denver Health for a while, who really supported me and said, yeah, you can do this stuff. Uh, and I think that's unique to Denver, too. It's kind of cool, right? Uh, we're not, you know, we're not entrenched in uh, sort of an ivory tower type of place where uh, you have to stay in your lane, but you have a lot of opportunity, and I, I'm really uh, grateful for that. Um, so started to get involved with the Hospital-Based Violence Intervention Program. Um, initially started with just sort of calling in some of the guys I had met from GRASP to say, I think this kid could really use, you know, somebody like you to come mm -hmm. and talk to them. Um, to what it's become today, we have six outreach workers, we have a, and a, a mental health navigator as well, and they meet uh, patients at the bedside in the emergency department, also in the community or in our clinics, because people call them for lots of, now that they know about us. Um, we've served over 900 youth so far this year. And uh, they, they help um, a patient. Our, our sort of focus population is 14 to 28. If they're shot, stabbed, or assaulted, and they come into the emergency department, one of our outreach workers goes to the bedside and um, helps them navigate their visit, helps them kind of translate the cultural language between um, their, what they, where they're coming from and then our staff, mm -hmm. and then start to talk to them about um, their lives and get to know them, and then ultimately case manage and mentor them after they leave the hospital to help close gaps to prevent them from having violent recidivism break injuries. Break the cycle. Yeah, break the cycle. And we're part of a national network called the Hobby, which is amazing, um, on the board, which is um, a huge, they're just an amazing group, honestly, um, doing you know research around that, doing you know program building. We've gotten some really great grants um, through the Department of Justice, um, some philanthropic support, um, and that got me to start to think about um, what can we do, not just to meet them in that moment of crisis, but also reach out to kids in the community to prevent them from even getting to that point. And so um, started to think about working with kids in high schools. Mm. Uh, and started out just doing sort of internships uh, in the summertime, doing some career day exposure for kids. We did about 400 kids that came through for half-day exposures. And then um, uh, As I, I hear you talk about this, ha have you been on a lunar mission or no? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, Not yet. Wait, I assume the CV will be in the show notes. I, it's, it will be. It will be. <laughs> 
Well, it, the file is pretty big. I, we it might not be able to be uploaded. It, 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 it do, just do they do microfilm? They still do microfilm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but you know I I do I usually I tend to think about like the why behind things right, mm-hmm. and so to me doing this pipeline work really does serve a lot of those whys. It, it certainly does all the things Pete talked about, but it also when I look at the work with AIM and our hospital-based violence intervention program, there's there's such big cultural gaps in our communities uh, in terms of uh, lived experience. And, you know, something as simple as telling somebody to follow up with orthopedics, you know, on this day can be impossible for many people who are, you know, if they can't miss a day of work because they'll lose their job, mm-hmm. They're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, they don't have insurance. They may not have transportation. <laughs> they may not speak the language, right? Uh, and and just really trying to understand how can I be part of like a cog in the wheel to change the system so that the folks who are in the system understand those lived experiences and design the system in a way that is actually um, workable for the people we're serving. And it's a lot harder to teach that than it is to infiltrate with those community members so that we are reflecting as a a medical community the people we're serving more. And so, yes, it gives me a huge amount of personal satisfaction to have these connections with these students, um, but it it also, my hope is that it will fundamentally change our healthcare system, um, particularly in communities where there are those big cultural gaps uh, of understanding. Um, and I, uh, you figured out now I'm a God person. So, um, I, I was reading a people article magazine once and I, I saw an article on faces for the future out of Oakland, California. And I said to myself, you know, I, I, I don't know why, but I know God wants me to have this. And so I tore it out and I scanned it and I never do that like hmm. ever, ever, ever. And, uh, I started getting involved with these internships. Um, so, uh, Katie obviously uh, responds a lot to sort of God's uh, input. Uh, <laughs> I also have to text her periodically, but, you know, dinner is at six. Uh, so if God is not, doesn't, doesn't. Not too do, busy. Tonight. <laughs> too busy doing God's work. If he could put his uh, work off till eight. <laughs> and we're only, we only have two of our three kids accounted for, which, you know, to which she responds like, you know, that's basically 70%, uh, and in the community she serves, 70%, you know, is, is, is a great result for a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, <laughs> um, where was I? Faces uh, for the future. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, so I, w- I had been doing that. these internships, and what I found was that the students afterward, many of whom I still work with from our first, you know, internship, Actually, they've come on um, to help teach some of our kids now. Are uh, they? They kept wanting to do stuff, right? And they'd be like, "Okay, Doctor Bakes, now what?" When the internship was over, and I said, "Nothing, no, no more. You go away from yeah. me. Yeah. I am not. You, now it's on you." <laughs> and they wouldn't go away. Go forth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> and I realized, you know, that 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 the um, one month or um, six week internships that we were putting on were just too short. Right, and and we needed more of a longitudinal experience with these students to really have an impact and, and have. So so the kids moved into our house. 
<laughs> so, so <laughs> not, not far from the truth. <laughs> um, Stay tuned. That's the next. Step. Yeah. I'm like, who's this guy, Victor, and why does he, why doesn't he ever put down the, the toilet seat? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> uh, and so I was asked actually with um, David Mack, the teacher at CC, if we would run a summit for Career Connect for, you know, the their program, and I, um, they gave me this list of here's how we're going to do it, and we're going to have a panel and blah blah blah. And I said, you know, I'll do it, but I'm not going to do that. You know, I said, this is the moment, right? It was maybe three years later that I had had kept this article. And I said, this is it. I know this is when God wants me to pull this out. And I, uh, I called um, Brooke Bagans and Tomas Magana from the program in Oakland. And I said, we're going to have the summit in two weeks. Would you consider coming out, helping present FACES, work with us to help build a FACES for the future program? And uh, they said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And I said, yeah, <laughs> I said, that's awesome. Um, and I told them the whole story the same way, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, like, they knew what they were getting into, right? Um, I mean, how, how cool is that in emergency medicine that you have those types of opportunities? Right, right, right? totally. I mean, you know, you, yep. you think about, like, all the things that you've done. Yep. Like, Michael, in the last podcast, mm-hmm. talked about staying open to opportunities. And here are these things that, like, Katie just – finds and then actively pursues, uh, which, you know, fulfills her. And I think that if, you know, you see that in community emergency medicine to some extent, certainly academics is your, your experience. I think you could do it. I think you could do it anywhere though. But But I think that for those listeners who are interested in emergency medicine, uh, I mean, that's, it's such a fertile ground for those types of opportunities. Uh, you know, it's the, the foundation of the hospital, and the hospital uh, yeah. uh, healthcare delivery system, right. uh, but it's also at sort of the fulcrum of many of the sort of social ills right. that sort of uh, beleaguer our, beleaguer uh, our society, right? Yeah. So, so Faces for the Future is a two-year longitudinal program. We have 32 kids now in it. Um, they're getting their CNAs while they're in high school. Wow. They get academic credit. Um, they come every Tuesday and Thursday. We have them. We we actually got a hub at West High School that they've given us. And we have nurses who help teach that. I have an amazing program manager, Shree Edwards, who runs that. Uh, and it's um, it's so great. And, and the schools and the principals we work with are so great and so on board. Um, and we also integrate a lot of AIM with that. So mm-hmm. AIM um, works a lot with um, the Compadres Network, which is based in sort of cultural healing and teaching and and teaching how to be a noble person, a man or woman, based on your code and um, when that code is challenged, what do you do? Uh, we do healing circles, which is um, a, a Pete leads those. Yeah, Pete totally. Pete leads those. those. Yep. I mean, I think that this sort of touches on that notion that you know the uh, these are resource deprived environments. Mm-hmm. You guys provide resources, but then there's also this foundational component of personal accountability. You know, developing a code that they live by, developing sort of mature coping mechanisms, right? Yeah. And, I mean, you know, these are s- programs that don't just represent acronyms. They represent sort of paradigms of sort of a path forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And FACES is not an acronym. Um, <laughs> FACES is not an acronym. It's just FACES. Um, it, sh- it should be. I know. <laughs> I know. Everybody thinks it is. But, um, but that, you know... Um, for all children, excelling, 
but, <laughs> but I'm over, you know, I mean, I, I also, I'm also over manage because the staff really does it, but mm -hmm. the health interest program, which is an undergraduate program. And, um, this year, a couple of our faces kids are actually in that program, which is super cool to see. And, uh, and also MC squared, which is a, a program out of children's, but we have a cohort at Denver health, 30 kids a year that come for that as well. And it really, uh, you know, the hope is that this will pipeline our community into mm. our work, right? Into our workforce. Right. So that we're, we're, um, we're living what we're preaching. <laughs> and we're investing, genuinely investing in the future of our yeah. community and our specialty simultaneously. Right. With much to gain. And, and that is something I've long appreciated, admired for you both is your genuine commitment to to the community we live in, in different ways, but complementary ways in many ways. How many other ways can I say the word ways in a sentence? I'm new to the podcast hosting thing, so I don't talk that much. Yeah. And it's but so much fun, I don't think this right? Is, I don't think this is a long-term fit. No, nah, again, I thought, you know, maybe face for radio, but it's, just, it's fine. You guys can host the next one. It's, 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 you're cute. Swing and a miss. Dude, I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, he is. No, I'm you're still, still in the, the room. best. I'm technically still in the room. <laughs> Take your hand off his knee. That's so weird. No, true story. I've so actually weird. actually played footsie with Pete like four times in this podcast, <laughs> and he has not put he has not refused it once. <laughs> just for the record, I believe it. Guilty believe as it. charged. <laughs> but you know, one thing that's really I always say that the medicine is sort of the hook, mm -hmm. right? Because I, you know, we teach a lot of this stuff we're talking about right now about what it means to be in medicine, you know, and what that calling means, and and how to sustain a career in that. And um, it's, um, it, I think we have a unique opportunity because emergency medicine is super cool. It's the and, best. You know, you get a student in the emergency department. I, I mean, I have people ask me all the time if I'll take a student and mentor or whatever. And I say, I will, but just so you know, they'll want to be an emergency physician. Because, you know, once you get that in your blood and you see it and mm -hmm. you see it's just, it's it's captivating, right? Um, and so it that provides a really great opportunity to say, yep, I got you now, right? Now let's talk about what's going on in your home. Now let's talk about why you're struggling at school. Um, now let's figure out, you know, how we can get your grades up or how um, we can help you navigate through whatever crisis is going on, because a lot of our kids have, have problems. Um, but they're also incredibly resilient and smart and capable. And to your point, Peter, that will benefit them. Right. That will oh, become their totally. strength. That will become yeah. I tell them that their all conviction the time. down the line. I tell them I can't take away your trauma. I wish I could, but I can't. But what I can help you do is use that to connect with others. And I'm expecting you to pay it forward what we're doing here because you're going to be able to connect the way um, even I can't and mm -hmm. other people can't because right. you, you're gonna, you're, you come from those same experiences. You mentioned earlier that Pete is a very kind of analytical person and tries to improve every day. And I, I just want to finish by saying I am better today for having interviewed you both. <laughs> and we and we are better as a community and as a specialty because of you both. And I think the the highest compliment I can and probably pay you to is is your your kids. Your you know when when Ryan and I came to dinner, with we cannot imagine or remember a time in which we've sat down with a family with three more kind, articulate, Aww. intelligent, well-adjusted, 
wonderful awesome. children. And there's that, <laughs> that I think you'd agree is probably the highest compliment I could pay you both. They're pretty amazing. Honestly, they're amazing. I, I don't know if I get credit, um, but, you know, they're phenomenal. And I think they are going to, you know, pay it forward. Our world is better off for having you both, and I am supremely grateful that you've taken the time with us today. Thank you. Bring, Thank it, you. bring it in. Bring it in. <laughs> bring it home. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.